So marriage is a very important part of people's lives. Often when you're trying to get to know somebody, you ask them, are you married, are you single? Because it is, it's so significant in our lives and it's also significant in, um, in society, right? Makes a, uh, a huge difference to our society. And so it makes, it make, it's understandable that uh, people want to know, well, what does Jesus think about marriage? Or, uh, and people in his day ask Jesus, Jesus, what, you know, what's this deal? There's this marriage issue, and they ask him about it. And so we are in this particular passage, Matthew 19, because we've been going through a, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, right? We're going through a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to this point 19. Now, you know the strength of going through books of the Bible, and that is, right, you get to, yes, context, exactly, right? You get to understand the context of, of the scripture because you've dealt with it, right? This, this whole last few weeks leading up to this, you already get some context. It also requires us to not just pick our favorite Bible verses, ones that are easy, one that I can get people all hyped up on, right? We have to deal with difficult passages, now, the, the drawback to this, of course, is that when you set up this, this series and plan it, there's not that much flexibility. So this particular passage, you know, our kids' church is on break, so, you know, our kids are here and whatever. And so, but Jesus talks about eunuchs. So ah, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to be delicate and uh, talk about that? But those are the challenges, right? The, the, the benefits and the difficulties of going through books of the Bible. Well, let's look at the context, okay? The, the context of this particular book, I mean, this particular chapter is in uh, 19, things uh, shift. It says that Jesus is heading, is leaving Galilee and heading to Judea. And this is actually his final journey. He's left Galilee for the last time. He's heading to Judea where he'll be crucified. And Matthew returns to the a theme in his work, and that is Jesus, he's healing people, and his ministry is growing, right? So he has this growing ministry, but with the growing ministry comes growing opposition. And indeed, these Pharisees come to test him, to test him about a particular, uh, all sorts of things, but in this section, they want to know, what does he think on a hot-button issue? The hot-button issue of that time was... Um, yeah, when can a man divorce his wife? And so they ask him that. Now, that's, that's the literary context. Let's look at the historical context. What they're probably asking is a, um, there was two major rabbis, two major schools in Judaism at the time. There was Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. And they had different approaches to interpreting the scriptures. And Rabbi uh, Hillel was much more open, much more, we could say, liberal. Rabbi Shammai was much more um, conservative and, um, yeah. And so, Rabbi Hillel, when it came to when can one divorce his wife according to Deuteronomy 24, Rabbi Hillel said, yeah, any reason. Pretty much any reason that the husband wants. In fact, the Mishnah says that uh, even if a wife burns supper, like, that's enough reason. Um, I mean, we laugh, but in the Mishnah, it talks about that. 
Now, Rabbi Shammai said, no, 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 you, it, it has to be something serious like marital infidelity. Well, anyways, those were the two, school, two schools of thought. And here's Jesus, he's a rabbi, and so they want to pin him down, because if you pin your opponent down, then it's easier to manipulate, easier to make coalitions, right? And they want to know, uh, Jesus, you have a lot of women followers, and in fact, Jesus had a lot of former prostitutes following him. And so it makes sense, they'd ask him, all right, Jesus, what's your approach on this? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We also need to realize in that culture that notice everything is, is sort of framed as in, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It's not that wives couldn't divorce their husbands. It's just it was very, very rare. And one of the reasons for that was that men held, for the most part, held the property, they worked. And so if you divorce your wife, most of the time, then she's destitute, right? She has to go back to her family, and, and, and who knows? So uh, that was a huge issue, and that's why it's framed this way, because it was generally the men who would divorce their wives. And they want to know, what do you think, Jesus? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And what's interesting is that Jesus, he answers not by talking about divorce, but by talking about God's vision and ideal for marriage. That's very interesting. We often want to know the rules, right? Well, what can I do? What can't I do? Because I want to make sure I'm checking all the boxes. But Jesus, there's real wisdom in going back to the basics. What was God's purpose? What was his vision for marriage? And Jesus answers in verse 4 through 6. It'll be on the screen. It was already read. But he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God's vision for marriage, first, the first part is a husband will, will leave his parents and be joined to his wife. The person transfers their primary allegiance from one generation, their parents, to a new generation, right? Making a new generation. And transferring their allegiance from parents to spouse. And then when they unite in a one flesh union, they create a new generation. Right? That's, so this one man, this one woman in a union for life that then creates the new generation. That's God's vision for marriage. That's God's vision for offspring. Now, this one flesh has a physical element, okay? So I don't, I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to go into deeply because the kid's around. Uh, but, but we see here God's vision. God has two complementary sexes, male and female, that need one another to procreate, right? And that union is the building block of, again, family, of a new generation, and so that physical union, it's tied to marriage. So the assumption is, okay, these things go together. Now, I know our culture, we don't have that assumption, um, but that's what Jesus, uh, that's his assumption. And 
Modern day, like with DNA, we understand that even more, that the DNA of the mother and the DNA of the father, they, they make a unique individual. So that even in the fetus, even when they're just a few cells, that, that baby is unique. A, a, a new creation. It's, it's not the mother. It's not the father. It's new. They make a new, a, a new generation, a unique individual. And we know this, like ancestry tests. Any of you like ancestry stuff? Do you trace your ancestry? Ancestry.com. Yeah, my parents go get all into that, right? And my folks are here. But when you look and trace your ancestry, what are you doing? You're like, all right, here's the mother and the father, okay? And then oh, that's their mother and their father. Like, we know this. It makes sense. So my mom and dad are here, right? I'm from them. <laughs> but, you know... We can trace it further back. So, my, you know, my mother, my grandmother, uh, Lillian, and my grandfather, Raymond, right? That made my mom. Like, th th we know this, right? That that's how it works. And God's vision is that, that that procreative process would happen in a permanent, committed union of marriage. And by going back to God's vision for marriage, Jesus... I mean, yeah, it's, it, it confronts us, it confronts our culture, but it also confronted his own culture. This was also um, something that really challenged the common practices of that day. So in biblical times, for instance, when Jesus said this, one of the things that the Pharisees could have said was, well, wait a minute, what about King David? Like, he had all these wives. Or what about all the patriarchs that had all of these wives? What Jesus is saying here, by going back to God's vision for marriage, he's also saying all that stuff, that's, that wasn't God's plan. And so they could have asked that. Now, what they happen to be doing is focusing on the divorce aspect. But Jesus was challenging them in many different ways. Because whatever God's ideal, if that's God's vision for marriage, the reality of the world is that we sinful humans, the reality of the human condition is we often fall short of God's, of God's plans, of his vision for our own lives in many ways. Not just marriage, but in many ways. And so the Pharisees, they're like, all right, Jesus, that, I, I hear your answer, but um, divorce is real. It happens. And then not only that, but in the Torah, Moses, he seems to allow for divorce, right? Verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send one, her away? That's what they asked. They're referring to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, again. And this is what those two schools were arguing about. If, people, if, if God didn't want people to get a divorce, then why does God's word seem to allow it? And then Jesus, he answers, well, God allowed it because of the reality of human sin, that we're, we're fallen. Right? Verse 8, he says, well, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You see, God makes allowances because of our fallen world, because we fall short of God's ideal. 
And we see this all over the Old Testament. There's many things where God recognizes, no, humans are fallen. They, they don't follow my ideal, but that doesn't mean I leave them alone. In fact, some of the laws in the Old Testament are designed understanding that, okay, people are fallen. It's not my ideal, but I'm at least going to make some laws to regulate it so that I can limit the amount of sin and the, and the amount of hurt that human sin can cause. So one of the examples is divorce, but another is slavery. A lot of people make a big thing about, oh, the Bible talks about slavery a lot. Well, and universally, up until a few hundred years ago, every culture had slavery. It wasn't God's design. And so some of the things in the Bible are regulating it. And in fact, they're radical in their time that you couldn't keep a, um, a, one of your Jewish brothers and sisters as an indentured servant, as a slave for more than seven years. After seven years, you have to let them free. And that was radical at the time. It's not that God condones it, but he's understanding human sin. The reality of this world is that people are fallen and they do things that I don't really want them to do. But in order to limit the damage, in order to try to redeem through the process of progressive revelation that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to limit this. Another example is justice, right? Vengeance. We know that vengeance is the Lord's, right? That's throughout the scripture. And yet you look in the Old Testament and there's all these things called, what do they call um, Cities of refuge, where if you kill someone by mistake, you run to that city. Why? Well, because it's just normal that if you kill someone, their family is going to come and kill you. That's just how the world works, even though vengeance is the Lord's. You see, there's all of these kinds of, of things in the scriptures that because of the reality of the human drift from God, God is great. I mean, he's still gracious. He works with us as we are. He doesn't, he doesn't leave us there. No, he wants to bring us into his kingdom. He wants to bring us into all that we were created to be. But he takes us as we are, and then he leads us. Because we can't do these things on our own. We can't love the way that we're supposed to love. We can't forgive the way we're supposed to forgive on our own power. And so oftentimes when we read the law, it just, we just feel condemnation. And maybe you feel that now. You're like, oh, wait, I've been divorced and I've been this and this. And, and you feel that. But no, God is, is calling us to him. He actually has a vision for your life. And let's, let's, so let's continue. Because, yeah, Jesus, he kind of lays these things out. He says, no, I'm ushering in the kingdom of God. So therefore, no, you can't just, if your wife makes you mad, divorce her. You can't just write a certificate of divorce and say, oh, you got the proper papers, so you're okay now. Like, that doesn't represent the kingdom. That doesn't reflect the kingdom. Because that's what is going on here is Jesus, he's calling people into the kingdom. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now he's explaining that what kingdom living, we can actually image God's kingdom in the here and now, because the kingdom is already and not yet, we can image God's kingdom in our marriages, but also in our singleness. And I'll get to the singleness part in a second. See, one of the problems is in our culture, we see everything through the lens of self-fulfillment. Right? We, everything. We can't help it. We're consumers. And so everything, we look at it, salvation is found in self-fulfillment. And that colors everything that we look at. 
including marriage. So that if it helps me fulfill my sense of self, yeah, I'll get married. But if that person stops making me have my sense of self, I'll, I'll let them go. God has a vision that is more than just self-fulfillment. It's kingdom fulfillment. And the, the thing about God's redemptive kingdom is it's not just like, oh, you messed up, you fell short, you're done. But rather, it's a kingdom of redemption. And even in visioning that redemption, it visions his kingdom because it's a kingdom of redemption. So as we seek to apply this principle to our day, I just want to note that Jesus, he wasn't addressing every circumstance possible. He was giving us the principle, the kingdom principle. And that is God, marriage actually, it, it, it gives us a picture, right, of God's covenant love. Um, there's other instances where divorce is permitted. Is there, for instance, it's, it's talked about in 1 Corinthians 7 for abandonment. And so we know, all right, this, it's not addressing every scenario. But the principle is God's ideal is a man and a woman for life. For life, not just when it benefits us, not just when it helps us fulfill our sense of self, but when it challenges our sense of self. Because oftentimes when we're challenged, when our sense of self is challenged and we realize and have a vision that, no, what's going on here in my life is bigger than me, it calls us up out of ourselves. Sometimes our, big, our biggest time of growth is when we're, when we're failing, when we're realizing, I can't do this on my own. I can't reflect God's love, covenant love in my marriage without his help. So that's God's vision for marriage. Now, we might not like it. We might disagree with it. But when Jesus speaks for himself, he gives us a very high view of marriage. And it challenged, challenges us. It challenges people of Jesus' day. In fact, it challenged people of Jesus' day so much that in verse 10, what does his disciples say? <laughs> they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, I don't quite get that. I'm like, what? So if you can't just divorce your wife for any reason, it's better not to marry? Well, how about just if she's faithful to you, be faithful to her? I don't get it. I'm like, why are you saying, you know, it's better just not to even bother with it? Well, I think one of the things that's going on here is, you know, Jesus was never married. Jesus was single. And I think they see Jesus as a 30-year-old Jewish man, which would be very unique for him to, um, to not be married. So Jesus is living the single celibate life. And so I think a part of their question is, all right, Jesus, you're talking about all these issues with marriage and stuff. So, and I see you're saying, is it better? Are you calling all of your followers to a single celibate life? Uh, yeah, I think he is. So I don't have to do any more weddings. My Saturdays are free. Um, <laughs> oh, no. He doesn't say that, does he? No, what is it? he says, no, no, not everyone can do that in verse 11. He says, not everyone can do that. Only to those who it's been given. Now, from here, Jesus moves from the blessedness of marriage to the blessedness of singleness. See, both marriage and singleness can fit into God's plan. It can advance his purpose on the earth. Again, our, it, it can image eternity. 
So marriage, can that kind of love image, images God's covenant love, his promise-keeping love. But singleness images eternity as well, because when G Jesus said, you know, in heaven, we're not married or given in marriage, but rather we're like the angels, meaning that in heaven, um, our love for everyone will be perfect and pure. And as a single person, you can image that and that you have connections to the larger body of Christ. So we can image that. And that's the calling. And I think that's good news because, you know, if I'm not going to take a poll here, but I would say we're about 50-50. In other words, about 50% of us are married, 50% of us are single. Right? Whether that's, you know, our, our spouse died or divorced or whatever. I, I think that's, so it's important to understand that God has a vision for your singleness as well. Because too many times, um, well, I'm going to get, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But because here, what does Jesus do? He goes back to the realities of living for God's kingdom in a fallen world. Because some people don't marry and procreate because they choose, right? That, that's what the image, that's what the, the uh, whole um, question is for the disciples, right? They're like, hey, Jesus, maybe it's better just to choose the celibate single life. And some people choose to do that, like Jesus as an example. Apostle Paul is an example. We've got some heavy hitters there who choose the single life and who advance God's kingdom in the single life. So he says, yeah, some people choose that, but then some people don't marry and procreate because they can't. Right? In our fallen world of disease and deformity and human violence, some people don't fit into that, the design for marriage and procreation. Now, in that day, the, the most well-known people who would fit into that category would be eunuchs. Okay? And Jesus refers to eunuchs in 12. So let me try to explain this in a kid-friendly way. <laughs> he says, some people are born eunuchs, meaning that when they're born, they don't have a f f a working private parts, um, reproductive organs not fully formed or fully functioning, just like some people are born and they might be blind. Their eyes don't work right. Right? Well, some people are born and their, their uh, private parts don't function in the reproductive way. Um, it says some people are made eunuchs by other people. And this is the tragedy of human sin where we treat other human beings like cattle or like possessions. And so some slaves way back then, um, their private parts would be, would be cut off um, I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> uh, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> Daniel, the prophet Daniel is probably an example of this. Daniel, the prophet, was probably a, uh, made a eunuch to serve in um, the Babylonian courts. And then finally Jesus says, and then there's some who make themselves eunuch. And this is probably not literal. I like the NIV. It says people who choose to live like eunuchs uh, because this is someone who is choosing the permanent celibate um, single life. 
Because that's what the disciples asked, right? Is, is that what we're supposed to do, not have marriage? And Jesus says, no, there's some that they can choose that, but there's others who, yeah, they can't follow, uh, they, they can't fall into God's design for marriage. And then there's some who choose that. And again, Paul and uh, Jesus are examples of that. He says, those who can accept that, accept it. You can live in the kingdom and image Christ's kingdom in a different but equally profound way as a single person. And I think that is so important. See, oftentimes when we read this passage, all we do is we focus on the marriage thing and oh, and we're thinking about divorce and this and then all, all these other marriage issues. But we skip this part and this part is so important because we miss that God has a vision and a plan for single people, for people who don't fit into that marriage thing, whether it's by choice or they can't. And in so doing, we cut off a huge avenue of service and of joy in the kingdom. We often, um, especially, I think the pendulum is with us Protestants and evangelicals, the pendulum is swung. We're like, hey, those Catholics, the priests can't marry. And, you know, and yeah, they go kind of overboard on the whole single celibate thing with priests and whatnot. But then we go the other direction and we almost make marriage, we, it becomes an idol for us. It becomes something where it's like, okay, um, if you're a Christian, then yeah, get married as quick as you can because then you can be super holy or something like that. But that's not what the scripture says, is it? The scripture has this vision, yes, for marriage. Marriage is profound, it is good. It's God's plan for human flourishing. So it is to be upheld, right? Let no man divide it up. But let's not then go the other side and make an idol out of marriage as if it's the only path to kingdom service. Because again, single people can image the kingdom of God in a different and profound way. We should value single people more. And however they got there and recognize their special place in the kingdom. And especially, I think, not so much now, but back in 2000 and the 90s and stuff like that, there was this subculture in Christianity that really almost made an idol out of marriage. But the goal is not getting single people married as if salvation is there. No, salvation is in Christ alone. And whether you're single or married, you can find salvation and new life and represent the kingdom in a very profound way. So that's not the goal. Oh, if you're single, then you, you need to get married. And we often subtly do this. We pressure like one another and as if it's wrong to be single or something. No, God has called some to the single life to advance his kingdom. See, again, we see everything in the lens of self-fulfillment. We see everything through this lens of, okay, this is how it's supposed to be, so therefore, you know, this is, um, you know, I'm gonna pressure other people to, to do this or, do, or not do that. So salvation is in Christ alone. And we can represent his, his kingdom. So if you're here and, you know, you've heard that message many, many times about, oh, no, you got to get married. You know, it's a one man, one woman marriage. And that's, that's, that's your only path. And maybe you're widowed. God still 
can use you in a powerful way. He still has his hand upon you. You can still advance his kingdom. You're not done. (laughs) If you're divorced, you might be like, no, I'm done. God can't use me. What about all the prostitutes that follow Jesus? They follow Jesus because he said, no, you're not done. That God still has a plan for you. He can still redeem you and use you, and he's calling you into his kingdoms. And that's why all these prostitutes, all these broken people, people with broken sexualities, they flock to Jesus because he said, there is space for you to follow him. Again, most in our culture, we cannot even fathom that, wait, Jesus, he's advocating for a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman and or single celibacy. Well, why can't we fathom that? Well, because we view marriage, we view singleness like everything through the lens of self-fulfillment. So we do this with church too. So if God sort of helps me feel self-fulfilled, yeah, I'll add him on. I'll add him on to make me feel a little bit more fulfillment. Or again, marriage, if it helps me feel self-fulfilled, I'll add that on or I'll take it away. But God is not calling us to self-fulfillment. He's calling us to kingdom fulfillment. And our vision for everything in our life, for, for marriage, for singleness, it's often so small and we don't even realize it. It all revolves around us instead of revolving around the kingdom. So two big takeaways. Again, and I, I, I tried to dance around some of these issues because of the, the kids that are here, but big takeaway one is God has a vision for your marriage and he has a vision for your singleness. You know, sometimes people who are married, they look down on single people as if, oh, they've done a great thing. But you can be married and not be imaging God's covenant, self-sacrificial love. I'm just going to say that straight up. That you can be married, but not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. You can be married, but it's all about self and not the other. But God has a vision for your marriage, but he also has a vision for your singleness. And God's kingdom, so the first thing I think we need to do is get the vision, right? Get that vision that instead of looking at this issue of marriage, singleness, what people can or can't do, get the vision of God wants you to image his kingdom, whether you're married or single, and stop having that vision of just self-fulfillment. Because even when it's hard, your marriage or your singleness points to something bigger than yourself. When it's hard, you're having to just stay to your commitment, your marriage commitment. It, it images God's covenant love to us. Or when it's hard and, you know, you're single and, you know, you've got all these temptations of doing this or, th- or doing that. And then there's that, wait, this is, I, I want to image God's love for his body his community, the community of believers. And so I can have, you know, a, um, a friendship with this person, this person, this person, in a broad way. Even if I'm not in that covenant marriage, I'm still now representing God's kingdom in a broader way. So that's the first thing, is big takeaway. Let's change our vision for marriage and signalness to God's vision. 
And then big takeaway number two, whatever your past, serve God in the now. And so if you're here and maybe you're feeling guilt, you're like, oh, you know, I've been divorced or I'm single, but it's not, not celibate. Whatever your past, serve God in the now. God has a vision for you and it's more than just yourself. And he's calling you to serve him, to serve him, to image his kingdom. That you're here because he wants to take you, draw you into his kingdom, and then have you represent him wherever you go. And yes, in this fallen world of disease and deformity, it, it, none of that keeps us from a place with Christ in his kingdom. So if you've ever gotten the, the message from the church that, oh, you know, you're outside, you, you can't be a part of God's kingdom. That's not true. Christ is calling you to be a part of his kingdom. And every eunuch has a unique, okay, maybe I can't, puns about eunuchs probably not in good taste, but, um, but er, you know, every eunuch, however you got there, whether it's choice or whatever, you have a unique place in God's kingdom. You can bring to light God's kingdom and his kingdom of redemption in a way that others can't. Because our salvation is in Christ alone. So no matter where we're at now, no matter where we've been in all these issues, right, married, divorced, single, straight, gay, whatever, Christ is calling you into his kingdom to find your identity and purpose as a follower of Christ. He doesn't want your guilt or shame. He wants your heart. And he's calling your whole self into his kingdom. Whether you happen to be married or single, whether you're a eunuch or whatever, you have a place, you have a calling in God's kingdom if you'll respond to it. But it is his kingdom, and it's a high calling. I say this, and it's not easy, but we're not alone. What God calls us to, he empowers us for. And he's calling us, whether we're married or single, to image his kingdom. Will we do that today? And you know, maybe some of you are here and you just, this sermon, it just made you feel guilty or like whatever. Again, this is, a, God's kingdom is a kingdom of redemption. You have a place with him and he's calling you to be a part of that kingdom. And so say yes to him. Don't try to figure out, oh, what is that going to look like? How am I going to do it? If you feel in your heart, no, my place, my identity is found in God's kingdom, then say yes to God. Worry about the details later. Just come to him. And again, for those of us who are married, same thing with our marriages. We can image God's kingdom in a powerful way. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask that you would use this time as we sing the last song. Lord, let it be a song of praise to you. And Lord, these are difficult subjects, and I know each person here is feeling a certain weight. But Lord, we are, we are grateful that we can find freedom in your kingdom. So Holy Spirit, work in this place cause our vision for our lives, especially in the area of marriage and singleness, to be a kingdom vision. Lord, we repent. We so many times, we look too, we look small. We have such a small vision 
for our lives. It's no bigger than ourselves. But we thank you that you call us to a story bigger than our own, not just ourselves, but Lord, your kingdom. So Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth in our lives as it is in heaven, as, as your vision. So speak to each one of us. And Lord, as we sing your praises, we sing recognizing your wonderful kingdom and your calling to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.